uh, the many blessings. We all have so many blessings in our lives, many, many reasons to be thankful. I'm very thankful to see that some of you stayed in town uh, for, for Thanksgiving. Good to have you here this morning. If you do have a Bible, please turn to Daniel chapter 2. We'll be reading uh, in just a minute here the entire chapter. It's a uh, pretty large chapter. Uh, we'll start in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. And as you're uh, turning there, uh, just say I've been, uh, I've been preaching uh, lately a series on prayer. I do still have two sermons that I want to preach on prayer in order to conclude that series, and I will preach those two sermons in just a couple of weeks, and I will then be starting a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to get ahead and prepare, start reading through the book of Nehemiah a little bit. I'm really excited to uh, begin to get into that book. Uh, But here this morning, we are going to do something a little different. And let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray before we start here. Father, we do thank you for every opportunity to open your word. And uh, Lord, we just acknowledge we need you. Every time we open this book, we need you. Father, I believe that you have breathed this book out for our eternal good. And Lord God, you who breathed this book out, we need you to open our hearts so that we might comprehend this book and just see incredible things in here. So Father, I just ask for the gift of your Spirit here in this room in all of our hearts. We are thankful, Father, that you are creator of heaven and earth and you can do anything. You are our helper at all times uh, when we look to you in faith. And we look to you now, Father God, in faith, asking for your help now that you would right now just kind of cut through some of the, uh, the mess that we see in our country and our world. I do ask, Father, that you would shine the light of your truth into our hearts, Father God. We believe that in your word you've given us a foundation on which to stand, a foundation that is never shaken. And so I ask, Lord, this morning that you would grant us the gift of your spirit, and you would grant us the gift of light, you would pierce the darkness, help us to see truth, you would ground our feet firmly on truth this morning. We look to you now, Father God, and trust that you will do this for your glory and our good. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Well, I am uh, planning this morning to do the unthinkable. Uh, There's a saying that uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and that means that I must be a fool this morning because I am going to rush in where angels fear to tread. I'm going to talk politics and religion today. There's a saying, you should never discuss politics and religion, a saying that has shown up in various forms over the years. A book in 1840 said it like this, never discuss politics or religion with those who hold opinions opposite to yours. They are subjects that heat in handling until they burn your fingers. Yes and amen to that. Or the Peanuts cartoon version, Linus said, there are three things I have learned never to discuss with people, politics, religion, and the great pumpkin. And you'll be happy to know that I will not be discussing the great pumpkin today. Uh, But I will be discussing politics and religion. Our country, uh, if you don't know, has recently been through a very tumultuous presidential election. One of the wildest that our country has maybe ever seen. From the two major candidates we had to choose from, to the bizarre pre-election debates, to the shocking election itself, to the protests afterward, just a tumultuous and really a very different type of election, which has to some degree reshaped the entire political landscape in our country. You can just feel the winds of change in our country. Our country has now entered into some new and uncharted territory. And the fallout from the election has been remarkable. 
For the past several weeks, I've really just kind of been observing. My father said when I was a little kid and I was around a crowd, I would just observe the crowd. I was shy. I would just sit on the outside and watch. And I feel like I've been doing that, just observing the crowd now in America. I've been watching discussions on major news networks, reading articles on the web, reading Facebook and Twitter posts. And man, this election, like no other, has just stirred people up in some major ways. Newscasters, athletes, actors, all kinds of people expressing their opinions in ways we've never seen before. And I don't think I've ever seen an election like this before where after the election, professing Christians have expressed such different feelings on the results of the election. On the morning after the election, on my Facebook page, one right after the other, one professing believer, someone you do not know, was celebrating the results of the election in a way that almost made it seem as if Jesus had returned. And the very next post, another professing believer, a pastor friend of mine, was expressing some fear over the results because he is an ethnic minority. Professing believers expressing joy and fear and everything in between. I've never seen anything like it in my voting life. There is just a bit of political chaos in our country right now. And I don't know where you stand on everything, and frankly, I don't care (laughs) this morning. I don't know how you might be feeling today, but I did feel almost compelled this week just to try to speak a little biblical truth into that political chaos. God says some things in the Bible about politics. God says some things in the Bible about kings and kingdoms. And we're going to look here this morning in the book of Daniel at just a couple of things that God says about kings and kingdoms. And I promise you, I will not get down into the nitty gritty today of our election. I will not talk about the candidates and things like that. That's not my calling here this morning. My calling is to proclaim truth to you and to preach it into the political world. I want to stay at the macro level here this morning, just thinking big picture this morning, just looking at a couple of very general things that God says in the book of Daniel about kings and kingdoms. You know, it is so easy at election time to get caught up in all of the chaos the, the ins and outs of the different candidates, the ins and outs of the different issues. And you can very easily lose sight of the big picture. And my prayer today is that God will help all of us just kind of step back and see things again from his perspective. So before we read here in chapter 2, let me just try to set the context very quickly for the entire book of Daniel. The events in the book of Daniel took place some 600 years or so before Jesus Christ was ever born. The people of Israel at this time, they were in exile in Babylon because of their sins against God. And the king in Babylon was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king at least at the start of the book of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar, by most accounts, was a ruthless king. He utterly demolished the city of Jerusalem, brutally dragged many of the upper class Jews in Israel into exile there in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 1, at the opening of the book, four of the exiled Jews who are now living in Babylon, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or better known as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebedwego, or Abednego, uh, those four Jews in chapter 
one were trained in the ways of Babylon and prepared to be some sort of wise men there in Babylon. Prepared to be some sort of, of, of foreign counselors or advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's where we are at the start of chapter 2. Now let's go ahead and read chapter 2, and I'll put on my speed reading voice here to cover 49 verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the kings commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show both the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the kings except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they thought. Verse 12, but because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. 
You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Amen. We did it. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, recurring dream it seems because uh, the book of Daniel talks about dreams plural. It was a fearful dream for him, a frightening dream. Verse 1 says his spirit was troubled, uh, his sleep had left him. A recurring nightmare of sorts for King Nebuchadnezzar. You ever had a scary recurring dream before? Uh, I certainly have. I remember one when I was a child. It doesn't seem that scary now, but it seemed scary when I was young. I kept having this dream. I would be running in the upstairs hallway in our home, and for some unknown reason, I'd just launch myself off the top step and just fly down the stairway and always wake right before I hit the bottom with my heart pounding. When I was in college, I had another uh, scary recurring dream. I played baseball in, in college, and I kept having this dream that the game was starting, everyone in the stadium waiting for me uh, to come to the plate to bat, and I was still in the clubhouse frantically searching for my pants. And I had the dream constantly when I was in college. (laughs) And King Nebuchadnezzar was having a recurring nightmare of sorts. And through a long series of events, God eventually revealed to Nebuchadnezzar uh, through Daniel what that dream was, what the interpretation was. And in verse 46, the king then fell on his face and said, Truly your God, Daniel, is God of gods and Lord of 
kings. And you cannot overlook that statement there. That's an important statement. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings in the world at this time, says, truly your God Daniel is the Lord of kings. He is the master over all kings. So that's the basic story in Daniel 2. And in that chapter there, we learn several things about kings and kingdoms that are appropriate for us here today. The first thing we learn is this. Number one, every earthly king is ultimately appointed by God. Every earthly king is ultimately appointed by God. Daniel had just received this vision from God in the night that revealed the dream and its interpretation. Daniel then praised God. Did you catch what he said? Look again at verse 20. Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He, God, changes times and seasons. He, God, removes kings and sets up kings. A very important statement there from Daniel. God removes kings and God also sets up or appoints kings. And we see other statements like that throughout the book of Daniel. If you look at um, chapter 2 verse 37, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand God has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you, Nebuchadnezzar, rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Daniel's simply praising there, and it's a statement that Nebuchadnezzar would hear later, I'm sure. Nebuchadnezzar, God is the one who has ultimately given you this kingdom. Given you your kingship. And made you to rule here in Babylon. God has appointed you. God appoints kings. And you look at Daniel 4.25. In Daniel 4, Daniel chapter 4, God decrees that Nebuchadnezzar will go crazy for a time. He'll crawl around like an animal and eat grass. And why does God decree this about Nebuchadnezzar? Look at the middle of 425. You, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know... That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. I'm going to make you crazy, Nebuchadnezzar, until you know that I, the Most High God, I rule the kingdom of men. Until you know that I give the kingdom of men, give the kingdoms of men to whom I will. God is the one who ultimately appoints kings. And look at Daniel 5.21. Daniel's just going to reiterate it. He was then, Nebuchadnezzar, driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind. And sets over it whom he will. God ultimately appoints King. And you can find many other statements like that throughout the book of Daniel. According to the book of Daniel, 
who is it who ultimately removes and sets up kings in this world? Who ultimately appoints kings, ultimately appoints monarchs and emperors and potentates? Who ultimately appoints presidents in our world? It's not the kings themselves who ultimately appoint themselves to be rulers. And it's also not you and I, the voters, who ultimately appoint them to be rulers. No, according to the book of Daniel, every single earthly king is ultimately appointed by God. And the rest of the Bible says the exact same thing. The overwhelming testimony of the entire Bible is that God is the one who ultimately appoints all kings in this world. Romans 13.1 sums it up very simply. Paul says this, Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. By God. By God. By God. Every authority in our world, every king, every ruler, potentate, or president, that authority, Paul says, has ultimately been instituted, ultimately ordained, ultimately appointed by God. You see, the Bible says that God is sovereign over everything in this universe. And nothing, 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 nothing takes place in this universe outside of His sovereign control. Nothing takes place outside of God's sovereign ordination or appointment. And that includes the crowning of all kings. No human being will ever become king in this world Unless God, the Lord of kings, has first ordained it. Sovereignly appointed that person to become king. God appoints kings. And listen please though, that that goes for both good and bad kings in our world. Yes, God, God sovereignly appoints those kings that seem to us to be good kings. Yes, he does. But God also sovereignly appoints those kings that seem to us to be bad kings. Nebuchadnezzar here, he was not what we would have called a good king. Okay, he was not gracious, he was not compassionate, he was not kind, he was not gentle. This was a ruthless man who killed multiple Jews when he dragged them into exile in Babylon. Not a good king. We would call him a bad king most likely. And yet, Daniel 2.37 says that God had given the kingdom of Babylon to him made him ruler in Babylon. God appointed Nebuchadnezzar. And listen, those words in in Romans 13.1, where Paul said that all authority has been instituted by God, well, when Paul wrote those very words there, the Roman emperor over Paul at the time The earthly king, in authority over Paul, was probably Nero. One of the bloodiest of all emperors. Who killed tons of Christians and also probably eventually beheaded Paul. And yet Paul says in Romans 13.1 that all authority, even Nero has ultimately been instituted or ordained by God. God appointed Nebuchadnezzar and Nero. Now listen, we will never probably understand why God would sovereignly appoint or ordain a bad or wicked king in this world. We will probably never know all the reasons why God would do that. Many of God's sovereign decrees will remain a mystery to us until the day we die. Why in the world would, would, would God ordain a king like Nebuchadnezzar or Nero or another bad or wicked king on this earth? Could be lots of reasons. Tom Schreiner says, sometimes God ordains good authorities as a blessing 
And sometimes God ordains evil authorities as a means of trial or as a means of judgment or for other reasons that we may never know. Could be lots of reasons why God would at times sovereignly appoint a bad or wicked king. But please listen, when God does appoint a bad or wicked king, that does not mean that God approves of that king as a person or approves of his policies. R.C. Sproul says, when Paul says in Romans 13.1, that the powers that be are instituted or ordained by God, he does not necessarily mean that the powers that be are approved by God. God, I'm sure, was furious at the injustices propagated by the Roman emperor in Paul's day, and God will ultimately judge and punish his injustices. But, Sproul says, Paul is saying something very profound there in Romans 13.1. Behind Paul's statement there that all authority is ultimately from God, behind Paul's statement there is the absolute conviction of Scripture that God is the Lord of history. And in the providence of God, there is no government that can ever come to power except through God's ordination. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that every earthly king, whether a seemingly good or bad king, is ultimately ordained or appointed by a sovereign God. And that right there, I hope, would just cut through a lot of stuff you're hearing right now. Just cut through a lot of the emotional mishmash that you read. That is the testimony of God's Word. That is the truth of God's Word. God appoints kings. Now that doesn't mean you should stop voting. Because that's where people want to go. And, hey, God is sovereign. Cool. I don't need to vote then because whoever He ordained to be king is just going to be king. That's a very faulty view of the way God's sovereignty works. Because yes, God has sovereignly ordained things on this earth. But God works through human means to carry out His sovereign decrees. So go vote. <laughs> go vote. Rally other people to vote. And when your candidate is elected, you can turn around and say... Wow, God appointed it and He stirred us up to vote to get it to happen. Listen, when you do vote and you rally other people to vote, you must recognize that when it comes to the election of kings, you are not sovereign. The American populace is not sovereign. The Electoral College is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And when it's all said and done, God is the one who ultimately appoints kings. What does that mean here today? Let me tell you something that means. It means that I can stand here in this pulpit today and say with all the confidence in the world that God has sovereignly appointed Donald Trump to be our 45th president. Unless people do a recount and he's removed, and then I will say God sovereignly appointed somebody else to be president. But here today, I will say God sovereignly appointed Donald Trump to be our 45th president. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why God has appointed him. And we try to draw direct connections. Well, if he's part of this party, well, God then appointed him for these reasons. We don't know why God appointed him at this time. God may have appointed him, as Tom Schreiner says, as a blessing for us. Or as a means of trial for us. Or as a means of judgment for us. Or for some other reason we may never know. Now, now I hope that God has appointed Donald Trump to be a blessing for our country. I will certainly pray that, that, that Donald Trump will be a blessing for our country. But only time will tell. But, but please hear me on this. If Hillary Clinton had won that election a few weeks ago, I would stand here today and say with just as much confidence that God had sovereignly appointed Hillary Clinton to be president. And God appointed Barack Obama to be president. 
And God appointed George Bush. And God appointed Bill Clinton to be president. Now we don't know all the reasons why he appointed those men to be presidents, but the scriptures would say God God ultimately appointed those presidents. And God appointed them either for blessing, for trial, for judgment, or something else. And listen, just because God appoints someone to be president like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, uh, George Bush, Donald Trump, that does not necessarily mean that God approves of that individual as a person or approves of all his policies. It just doesn't. You can't, you can't draw that straight line connection. God appointed Nero, but that did not mean God approved of Nero as a person or of his policies. And yes, God has appointed Donald Trump. Man, we should pray. The scriptures tell us to pray for our president. Pray for him. Scriptures tell us to be in subjection to the authority over us. Be in subjection to him and the rest of the government until the government tells you to disobey God and then don't be in subjection to them any longer. Be in subjection to your president. But listen, just because God appointed Donald Trump to be president, that does not necessarily mean that God approves him as a person or all of his policies. We don't know that. You can't draw that straight line connection. Who appoints kings in our world? Bottom line, God does. Man, it is so important that as Christians we remember that. When someone you like is elected, God appointed it. When someone you don't like is elected, God appointed it. And you know what that means? One thing it means is you don't need to fear, no matter who is elected. If you can remember that every single president is ultimately appointed by God, then no matter who becomes president, either now or in the future, whether it's a seemingly good or bad king to you, in your estimation, you can be confident that that election was ultimately under God's control. It wasn't out of God's control. It wasn't just a random act of, of, of circumstance. So it wasn't ultimately under someone else's control. It wasn't under Satan's control. Satan doesn't ultimately control the world. God does. And what Satan does, God permits Satan to do it. Well, it's not ultimately under the devil's control. Flesh and blood didn't ultimately decide the election. God did. God is the Lord of kings, the ultimate appointer of all kings. And man, God will always be working in and through his appointed kings for his glory and for the eternal good of his people. So praise God. You believe God appoints kings, and then it doesn't matter who's appointed, God is still in control. It's one thing we learn here every earthly king is ultimately appointed by God. A second thing here every earthly kingdom will ultimately be removed by God. Every, ultimate, every, every earthly kingdom will ultimately be removed by God. And we can see that, I believe, in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, this statue comprised of four materials. You look at verse 30 again. Daniel says, you saw in your dream, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty of an exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And when Daniel later gives the interpretation in verse 36 and and following, he says those four materials represent four successive kingdoms. Daniel says the, the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon, and then the other three materials were kingdoms that would arise after Babylon, one after the other. And traditional commentators throughout church history have almost universally identified the three other kingdoms as Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those were the three other kingdoms that did eventually come to power right after Babylon, one after the other. Daniel talks about those three kingdoms later in the book of Daniel. And I would agree that those four materials in the statue probably primarily represent those kingdoms. I think that entire statue most likely represents the successive rise and fall of Babylon and then 
Medo-Persia who would conquer Babylon, and then Greece who would conquer Medo-Persia, and then Rome who would conquer Greece. But here's the thing. If you get all hung up here with the details of all these different kingdoms, and you get all hung up with trying to identify these different kingdoms, you can easily miss the point here. Because when God gave that dream there, this, this statue, I don't think God was just making a statement there about four earthly kingdoms. I think God was making a statement there about all earthly kingdoms. You, you see, that, that statue there, it was in the shape of a man. A human being. And I think God was probably making a statement there about all human kingdoms, all the kingdoms of man. With those different materials there, representing different kingdoms that would replace the kingdom that came before them. I think God was probably telling us there that every kingdom of man would eventually be replaced by another kingdom of man. Just keep going. Cyclical. Ian DeGuid says, one of the central features of this dream is the transient nature of all worldly authority. The dream reminds us that every earthly kingdom has an after this. No earthly kingdom is forever. The gold gives way to the silver, which in turn gives way to the bronze, and on and on they go. But here's the thing. You know, with this statue here, you just think about it, picture it in your mind, and what they represent, the different materials. You know, it's not just that one kingdom in the statue is eventually replaced by another. No, at the end of the dream, the entire statue is obliterated. It's obliterated destroyed, not a piece of it remaining. Look at verse 36 again. Daniel says, As you looked at this statue, Nebuchadnezzar, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. You just picture now Nebuchadnezzar hearing this. Wow. Because when you think about it, that it right there, that is a great picture of what ultimately happened to those four earthly kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, they all ultimately passed away. And God was telling Nebuchadnezzar that his, his, his uh, kingdom would pass away. But man, once again, I don't think God was just making a statement there about four earthly kingdoms, but a statement about all earthly kingdoms, all the kingdoms of man. I think God was saying this to us right there. All the kingdoms of man, they will all ultimately be crushed. They will all ultimately be obliterated. Every last trace of them blown away like chaff. (laughs) You've heard that old rock song, some of you, by the band Kansas, all we are is dust in the wind. And I think God was saying to us right there that all the kingdoms of man will ultimately be nothing more than dust in the wind. God forever. And please listen to me. That includes the United States. That includes the kingdom of the United States. It is good and right for us to love our country. God has given us an amazing country. Good and right to love it. It is good and right for all of us to do what we can to make our country better. But man, when it comes to our country, the United States of America, it is so easy to get caught up in this kind of kingdom frenzy. 
Oh no, I hope our kingdom is going to be okay. I'm concerned about the direction of our kingdom. Things seem to be getting out of control in our kingdom. We, we, we seem to be heading down a bad road in, in our kingdom. We, we, we need to do something now. Elect the right president. Put the right people in, in Congress. Fix the kingdom. Make the kingdom great again. And man, please, please listen. Don't get me wrong. There, there's nothing at all wrong with wanting to fix our kingdom. Man, and I would love to see this kingdom become great again. Let's do everything we can to make this kingdom great again, whatever that might mean. But it's this kingdom frenzy thing. This, this worry. This concern. This fear. This dread. Concerning the kingdom called the United States. And you feel it most during election season. Every election season, but especially the last election. People just freaking out over the state of the kingdom. Newscasters almost in tears over the kingdom. Actors, athletes in despair. People rioting in the streets over the state of the kingdom. And listen. It's not just non-Christians who get caught up in the kingdom frenzy. It's Christians too. Man, you can feel it all over the place. Feel it in Facebook and Twitter posts. You can feel it in people's words and prayers. The prayers, the words of believers. Not not just a healthy concern for our country. Not not just a healthy concern on uh, uh, in in words stated on the computer uh, uh, and in prayers, but 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 a fear. This worry, this concern, this dread concerning this kingdom called the United States of America. And deep down at the roots of that, I think it is probably sin. I think it would probably be called idolatry. Idolizing an earthly kingdom. Terrified that your idol will somehow become tarnished. Terrified that someone will actually come and take your idol away from you. And man, listen, it might be okay, or at least understandable, for, for non-believers to think that, that, like that about the kingdom of the United States and to get caught up in this kingdom frenzy because that's the only kingdom a non-believer has. You lose that as a non-believer. You've lost your kingdom. But it is not okay for believers to do that. To get caught up in that kingdom frenzy. Because if you genuinely trust in Christ today, the United States is not your ultimate kingdom. It is not your ultimate kingdom. And here's the thing. If you, as a believer, if you tie your hopes too tightly to this earthly kingdom called the United States of America, not only will you live in fear and dread and concern, no, at some point in time, you're probably going to be devastated. Your world is going to be absolutely rocked. Because at some point in time, this kingdom is coming down. It's coming down. It will pass away. God has promised in His Word. Now, now my hope is that this kingdom will not pass away until Jesus returns. <laughs> I think a lot of Christians believe that the U.S. will remain a superpower until Christ returns. And when He returns, He'll just land on the Empire State Building <laughs> when He comes. I hope it does remain a superpower until Christ returns. But listen, if Jesus tarries and He doesn't return relatively soon, this kingdom 
like every kingdom that came before it, will pass away. This kingdom of man, just like every other kingdom of man, it will have an after this. Babylon passed away. Medo-Persia passed away. Greece passed away. Rome, which lasted for 500 years, passed away. And this kingdom will too, if Christ tarries just a matter of time. Now you can stick your head in the sand, <laughs> like some Christians do, I think, and act like that will never happen, and you might be offended at me for saying that it might happen. But man, if Christ delays, it will happen. I personally believe, I personally think it's already heading in that direction. I think we can already see signs of decline in our empire, in our kingdom. Maybe not. We'll see. Maybe God will do a major turn here in the next uh, 4 to 8 to 12 years, whatever it is, and will last for 500 years like the Roman Empire. Maybe. But maybe not. And if and when this passes away, before Christ returns, if you've tied your hopes too tightly to this transient kingdom called the United States of America, if and when this thing does pass away, you are going to be devastated. So man, lo- love love. This country. Yep, absolutely. Work for the good of this country. But just make sure you hold this thing lightly. Make sure you hold it lightly. And do not, as a believer, get caught up in this sinful, idolatrous kingdom frenzy that is so common in both non-Christian and Christian circles. Because God has told us what will happen. Every single kingdom will pass away. Most of them will pass away long before Christ returns. And all the rest will pass away when Christ returns. This kingdom, like every other kingdom, it has feet of clay. It will crumble, and it will be gone, dust in the wind. That's the second thing here. Every earthly king is ultimately appointed by God. Every earthly kingdom will ultimately be removed by God. And the final thing here, every earthly king and kingdom will ultimately be replaced by the one true eternal king and kingdom. Every earthly kingdom and king, king and kingdom will ultimately be replaced by the one true eternal king and kingdom. If you look at verse 34, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, as you looked at the statue in your dream, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I love that picture. <laughs> My word. Man, I read through the Bible every year by God's grace. Some of these years I'm probably not going to make it, but I've been doing it lots of years. And the Bible reading plan I read, it always has me reading Daniel at election time. And I honestly think Daniel should be required reading for every Christian <laughs> at election time because it makes you stand up and you see the big picture and you're like, yep, okay, here's the kingdom of the United States, but I see a stone. <laughs> and the stone seems to obliterate everything in its path. And the stone grows into a mountain that fills the entire earth. Man, how cool is that? And Daniel says that this stone, he says down in verse 44, that this stone that crushes this statue and becomes a, a mountain, well, this stone is another kingdom. It's a kingdom that's cut out not by human hands, but as Daniel says in verse 44, a kingdom set up by the God of heaven, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Daniel says in verse 44 that this kingdom will break in pieces all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but this kingdom will stand forever. And what is this stone here in this dream? (laughs) you got to love it. That stone's Christ. That stone is Christ and the kingdom of Christ. 
You know, all through the Bible, Jesus is referred to as a stone. (laughs) Isaiah 28, behold, God says, I have laid a foundation in Zion, a stone. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone. Isaiah 8, he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, but has become the cornerstone. The stone is Christ and Christ's heavenly kingdom. And man, what a great picture for Christ. A stone. You think about a stone in, in, in your hand. Man, it, it doesn't look like anything great on the surface. It's simple. It's small. It, it's seemingly insignificant. And that was Christ when he came to earth. Small Simple, seemingly insignificant, nothing great to look at. A little baby in a manger, just a little stone from heaven. But man, in that little stone there named Jesus, the kingdom of God had now come to earth in a new and powerful way. The one and only true king and his eternal kingdom was now here on this earth. And in this dream here, the stone then grows, which has been happening to the kingdom of God ever since the birth of Jesus. The kingdom of God now growing on this earth. The kingdom of God now spreading on this earth into more and more human hearts as more and more people see the glory of Christ and repent from their sin and trust in and follow Christ. The stone has been growing. And the stone here in this dream, it ultimately grows into a great mountain that fills the entire earth. That's the kingdom of God. Ultimately penetrating human hearts in every single people group on this planet. The kingdom of God ultimately filling the entire earth. King Jesus and His eternal heavenly kingdom from stone to mountain, from manger to mountain. Man, that's a glorious picture. And listen, Jesus and his kingdom, according to this, this passage here, will obliterate and blow away every kingdom of man. But his kingdom will remain forever. And here's the thing. If you now trust in Christ with a genuine, simple, childlike faith, then guess what? You are a citizen of that kingdom right now. That is your ultimate kingdom. That's it. That is your ultimate, ultimate kingdom. The kingdom of God. Christ is your ultimate king. King Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. But man, what's amazing is you're not just a citizen of the kingdom if you're a believer. No, you've also been called by God to be an agent of the kingdom. You've been called by God to be an ambassador. Jesus Christ now wants to work through you to spread his kingdom from a stone to a mountain. You're a citizen. You are an agent of the kingdom. And if that's you today, if you are a Christian trusting in Christ, you have that kingdom, you're part of that kingdom, then if everything in this earthly kingdom seems to be coming apart at the seams, you have nothing to fear. Because the Bible says you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And though all hell breaks loose against you in this country, God will protect you, God will watch over you, and He will bring you into heaven the second you die. Man, political chaos all around us right now. I don't know where you stand. I just felt compelled to speak biblical truth into that chaos. Every earthly king is appointed by God. Every earthly kingdom will pass away. And the only kingdom that will be left standing is the kingdom of Christ. May God give you the faith to trust in and follow Christ. And may you enjoy and advance His kingdom the rest of your days here on this earth. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You. I fought against that message all week long. And I just thank you. I just trust you directed me to preach on that passage this morning, Lord God. Just a compelling in my heart to preach it. And I just pray, Father, whatever I might have spoken today that would not be truth, you would cause it to fall away and be forgotten. 
I pray, Lord, whatever I have spoken that has been truth from you, from your word, I pray that you would drive it into our hearts and we would not just be people who nod at these things, but we would be people who live according to these things. In the things we say to our neighbors and the people around us when we talk politics, uh, to the things we might write in letters or, or emails when we talk politics. And Lord God, may we live as citizens of, of your kingdom and, and live to, to spread this kingdom which will, it's ultimately already been ordained that it would grow from a stone to a mountain and fill this earth. Praise be to you, Lord God. In the name of Jesus, amen.